Jeremiah chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, we read, The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and the princes of Judah with the craftsmen and smiths from Jerusalem, and had brought them to Babylon. One basket had very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe. And the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were so bad. Then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs, the good figs, very good, the bad, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They're so bad. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of Chaldeans. For I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land, and I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. Then I'll give them a heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And as... The bad figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely, says the Lord, so will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem, who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their harm, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all places where I shall drive them, and I will send the sword, the famine, and the pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I give to them and their fathers. This is Jeremiah's twelfth sermon. It is also his sixth parable. As we've made our way through the book of Jeremiah, we looked at the parable of the almond rod in the boiling pot, the parable of the marred girdle, the parable of the wine bottle, the parable of the potter and the clay, and the parable of the broken bottle. And now, the parable of the two baskets of figs. In order to understand this parable, it's going to be necessary for you to have at least some understanding of the historical background. The year is about 597 B.C. to 587 B.C. As a matter of fact, we know exactly when this is because of 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. And if you have a Bible, you might just take a little peek. At 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 10. 
In verse 10, it says, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem. The city was besieged. And then the passage in 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 11 through 16, talks about how Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, his officers went out to the king of Babylon in the eighth year. That's the marker, the chronological marker. The eighth year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar dates to 597 B.C. According to the passage in 2 Kings, the king, that is Nebuchadnezzar, carried out the treasures of gold from the king's house and the temple. That means he looted the house of the king of Judah and Jerusalem. He took out the gold artifacts of the temple. According to the passage, he cut up the pieces of the articles of gold which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made in the temple, according to verse 13. Then all of the captains, all of the mighty men of valor, ten 10,000 captives, none remained except the poorest in the land. All the valiant men, 7,000 craftsmen, smiths, except the poorest in the land. 1,000 who were strong and fit for war. The king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And so what he does is he comes in and he cherry picks the best of the best, the finest of the finest. He removes from Jerusalem and Judah. The scientists, the technicians, the people who are the craftspeople, everyone who is a skilled worker, you might say. And you know who that includes? Daniel. You know who else it includes? Ezekiel. And so Nebuchadnezzar then placed Zedekiah on the throne. And the people who remained in Jerusalem were the poorest of the poor, but also these were the people who supported Zedekiah. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 14 through 21, Ezekiel began to understand the advantages of those people who were taken into captivity. So you have two great groups of people. Those who remained and those who went into bondage and captivity into Babylon. Jeremiah and Ezekiel come to the same conclusion. That the exiles in many ways are going to be way better off than the people who were left in Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah receives the vision during the reign of Zedekiah after the Babylonians have exiled King Jehoiachin and the leaders of the city. Now, you have to remember, for those of you who haven't been following along in the book of Jeremiah, for over 200 years, God has sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people of the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. As he has sent prophet after prophet after prophet, there has been a singular message. You guys are in trouble. You need to turn from your sin. You need to turn to the Lord. There's a captivity coming. Your life and your actions and what you're doing matters. During the reign of the last four kings, Zedekiah, Shalom, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, as these kings mounted the throne, the prophets came with a frequency and intensity that culminates 
in the ministry of Jeremiah saying, turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Return to the Lord. And so Jeremiah basically repeats the message. (laughs) Those who remained counted themselves fortunate. But God's going to reveal something that man's ways aren't always God's ways. And man's logic isn't always God's logic. And the people in Jerusalem began to feel smug and safe and superior. And so this parable is in part to correct that misperception. Now remember what a parable is. It's an earthly story that represents a spiritual truth. God's ways aren't our ways. God's plans aren't aren't exactly our plans. And so the Lord gives this vision and parable for a much needed lesson. And the lesson is going to include the idea of hope contained for those who are being disciplined by God. And this becomes part of what you need to be able to grab a hold of. And that is, is there a God? Yes. Does he discipline his own? The answer is yes. And so for those who are disciplined by God, that's one thing. But for those who are punished by God, that's another thing. And so these two baskets of figs, in one sense, becomes a type and a picture of two kinds of people. Those who are being disciplined by God and who are righteous... And those who are being punished by God and who are wicked, both are going to experience trial and both are going to experience suffering. But what's going to differentiate the wicked from the righteous is how they respond to that suffering. In a very real sense, discipline will bring momentary pain and it'll bring momentary hardship, but discipline will also bring hope and peace. And so God will use the Babylonian captivity to bring about a purging, a peace, hope. God is going to use the discipline for good. And even when the discipline comes... God will promise to watch over his people. He will promise to protect his people. He will promise to make his people secure. He will also use the discipline as an opportunity to form, shape, change the heart. Now, Jeremiah uses parables frequently. And so the text begins with, Information, and then it continues with explanation. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord showed me, and there were two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. That expression, the Lord showed me, becomes a type and a picture both of revelation and inspiration. Again, for those of you who've been studying along in the book of Jeremiah, you'll remember in chapter 23, the Lord showed or demonstrated the hypocrisy and the inconsistency of the false teachers and the false prophets. And so the false teachers and the false prophets, remember, have a false message. But Jeremiah has a true message. 
It's a real message from God. And by the way, remember, that's part of the point that we have to struggle with. There are many people who will say, I have a message from God or that the Lord showed me something. But they're unwilling or they're unable to demonstrate that message from the word of God. And so. Jeremiah, his vision stands in stark contrast to the false dreams, the false words of the false prophets. And so. There are many scholars who will argue about the nature of the, the dream but, or the vision. And in Jeremiah chapter 24, it doesn't tell us. It just simply says, the Lord showed me. But it doesn't tell us exactly how the Lord showed him. In what way did the Lord show him? We're not told. It could very well be. Remember, at this point, the temple is still standing. Zedekiah has been named the temporary uh, ruler of the, the city. It hasn't been completely destroyed. There's still offerings being made in the temple. And he sees two baskets of figs set before the temple of the Lord. After Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, the princes of Judah, with the craftsmen, the smiths. This is the, the, the technologically minded people from Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. And he says he has these baskets of figs. Now, by the way, I think you know what a fig is. The fig is a small pear-shaped fruit that grows on small trees that is common to the Mediterranean. As a matter of fact, they're related to the mulberry family. They're cultivated in Israel, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Greece. As you make your way across the ocean to Albania and Italy, Italian people love figs and fig cookies. As a matter of fact, some of my most uh, pleasant memories at Christmas time is my Nona, my grandma, making fig cookies. And it's one of those things that you just remember. Now, one of the things is that the fig was cultivated year round. And the fig, by the way, is the very first tree mentioned by name in the Bible. Many of you are going to remember that when Adam and Eve um, disobeyed God, you'll remember that they sewed fig leaves together. And so to cover up their nakedness. Fig leaves are used to describe man-made religion, human righteousness, something that human beings make up to shield their sin. The fig leaf is large and smooth and pleasant to the touch, but it has a downside. Once it's exposed to the sun, it shrinks rapidly to about one third of its size. Now, if you're counting on figs as cloth and it goes and it shrinks up, guess what? The things that you're trying to hide are pretty much exposed. And so fig leaves become a type and a picture of man-made religion, human religion. And the clue is given to us right in this very first verse. The two baskets of figs are set before the temple of the Lord. These two baskets of figs in the parable are presented as an offering to the Lord. Now, Offerings to God usually fall broadly into two categories. Offerings that are acceptable. Offerings that are 
Not acceptable. That's pretty easy. Yeah. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure this one out. Even in the opening chapters of Genesis, when you learn about Cain and Abel, one brother's offering is acceptable. The other brother's offering is unacceptable. And the reason why one is acceptable and the other is unacceptable is because they're making an offering and it's an offering that is inconsistent with the revelation of God and the character of God and the word of God. One brother makes an offering of blood. The other brother makes an offering of fruit. One is cultivated through human means and the other one is a sacrifice. And so we right away get a picture that offerings that are acceptable to God must come by blood. And so one basket had very good figs, it says in verse two, like the figs that are first ripe. Like I said, figs were gathered year round. The first figs were gathered in June. And they were considered a rare delicacy. And so when he looks at that first basket of very good figs, like the figs that are first ripe, and the other basket had very bad figs, which could not be eaten. They were rotten. They were so so rotten, they weren't even fit for human consumption. But even figs that weren't fit for human consumption would sometimes be used to feed donkeys. Animals. More crops would come in August. Winter figs would come in November. And so these first fruit figs were considered an extreme delicacy. And then the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? And I said, figs. The good figs, very good. The bad figs, very bad, which cannot be eaten. They're so bad. So the two baskets are a type and a picture of offering, good and bad, acceptable and unacceptable. So let's talk about that for just a moment. What do you suppose constitutes an acceptable offering to the Lord? Well, the New Testament reminds us that this is what the Lord desires. Your heart. What does it matter that you want to bring to God if you're not prepared to give him your life? If you're not prepared to give him your heart? As a matter of fact, remember in Romans chapter 12, we're told that we're to bring our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is the acceptable offering that God is looking for. And so we're told in the New Testament that there's only one way to come to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is The acceptable offering. It is the sacrifice of Jesus. It is his death and his resurrection that's the satisfying offering. Most people want to hang on to their sin and they want to hang on to their rebellion and they want to hang on to their disobedience. They want to fulfill selfish lusts and selfish desires. They have absolutely no desire to obey God. They have no desire to live righteously. But they don't want to go to hell. And so there, there's the struggle. The struggle is, what is the minimum I need to do in order to be acceptable to God? But even the question begs a more pertinent question. 
When you have to ask the question, what's the minimum I need to do in order to have a right relationship with God, you're missing the point. Imagine you entered into a relationship with a man or a woman. And imagine that, the, that you met this person online at eHarmony.com. And you begin your first date by saying, what's the minimum I have to do in order for this to be a successful relationship? What's the minimum? How often do I need to call you? How, I, how often do I need to actually see you? How often do I have to pretend that I care about you? What do you think the chances of the relationship lasting? Not very good. The Bible says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, And he, that is Jesus, speaking to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so now, between verses 4 and 7, there's a series of promises that are given. You might want to count them out with me. There are four promises, and we're going to get to them in just a moment. In verse 4, it says, again, the word of the Lord came to me. Again, remember, when you see that expression, this is in contrast to the false words, the false teaching, the false revelation given to the false prophets. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good into the land of the Chaldeans. Note that expression, whom I have sent out of this place for their own good. Right away, we begin to learn something. The exile appears to be a tragedy, and it is. But it's a tragedy that God wants to use for their good. And so there are two baskets Two basket cases, if you will. Those who are facing different kinds of tragedies. And so God will give four promises. I want to give them to you quickly and then we're going to look at them. Number one, God promises to use the Babylonian captivity for good in verse five. And then in verse six, it says God promises to watch over and to protect his people in captivity at the beginning of verse six. And then number three, God promises to encourage and build up and protect them while they're in captivity at the end of verse six. And number four, God promises that he will use the captivity to work in their hearts in order to change their hearts in verse 7. So we begin in verse 5. Determined discipline for, for good. Now, remember in the parable, who are the good figs? These are the people who have been taken early on in the captivity to Babylon. Think Daniel. Think Daniel and his friends. Think Ezekiel. Think again, this cream of the crop of the men and women who stand for the best and the brightest that Israel has to offer. Now, I'm going to ask you kind of a hard question. If you grew up on a farm, if you grew up out in the wilderness somewhere, you're going to know immediately the answer to the question. What do you do with good figs? You preserve them. You take care of them. You enjoy them. 
And so the Lord is making a promise. He's going to preserve a group of people. He's going to take them and he's going to shelter them and he's going to protect them even when he takes them to Babylon. Watchful discipline. Look what it says. For I will set my eyes on them for evil. That's not what the text says. For I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to the land. Okay, here's the idea. The Lord promises to watch over his people and protect them. The watchfulness and protection... Remember, remember the context. It's in the context of discipline. The people have suffered. The people have been conquered. The people have lost their possessions. Some of them have lost loved ones. Some of them have lost wealth. Some of them have lost power. Now they're being mistreated. Now they're being abused. Now they're being exiled into a place that's not their home. You might think it would be easy for them to come to the conclusion, this doesn't feel like protection and this doesn't feel like good. But it is. Because here's the promise. I will bring them back to this land. Now remember, I've told you this on several occasions as we've been going through the book of Jeremiah, because Jeremiah is a scroll that Daniel will have when he gets to Babylon and he will unroll the scroll and he will read these promises and he will weep and he will cry and he will pray as he realizes that the plans of God and the purposes of God towards the Jewish people are not over with, that God is going to bring them back into the land and that God's plans and God's promises include the coming of the Messiah. And the coming of a, of a redemptive Messiah. How do you respond to suffering? How do you respond to pain? How do you respond to discipline? Do you ask, what possible good could this be serving? I don't understand why I'm ill. I'm, I don't understand why I can't get a job. I don't understand why the people around me have lost their job. I don't understand why these, these painful circumstances are taking place in my life. Are you convinced that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him? Who are the called according to his purpose? Are you realizing and recognizing that there is a God who makes promises to you even through the most difficult circumstances of your life and what seems like the consequences of rebellion or disobedience? How do you respond to suffering? Panic? Resentment? Whining? Do you immediately go into martyr mode and go, oh, why me, God? Why has this happened to me? Oh, God, I can't even believe that this is happening. Or do you even blame God? God, why did you do this to me? I thought you were a good God, and I thought you were a gracious God, and I thought you were a, a kind God, and I thought you were a generous and a merciful God. Is that how you respond to pain and suffering? Blame and resentment. But here's what the Lord says. Guess what? Even in the midst of this, this discipline, I'm going to use it for good. And I'm going to have a restorative 
power and it's going to have prophetic meaning. And look what it says at the end of the verse. I will build them and not pull them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. It appeared that some of them were being torn apart and some of them were being torn down and that some would be utterly destroyed. Some would be made stronger, surviving the captivity. And here's part of the point. Some of the people who were taken to Babylon experienced something quite unexpected. They began to prosper. They began to thrive. They began to make homes and a living and circumstances, but they understood something else, that this is not where they belonged, that this is not where they would stay. For all outward appearances, it looked like the uprooting would be permanent, but God saw something way beyond that, something into the future. And it wouldn't take place in the first generation. And it wouldn't even take place in the second generation. After 70 years of captivity, a remnant would return to the land. The Lord God would cause the children of Israel to return. And some of them he would restore to the land. But remember, in that restorative process, it's because God is going to make sure that his promises come true. And what's the ultimate promise? That a Messiah is going to come. That he's going to be born of a virgin. That he's going to live a perfect life. That he's going to die on a cross. That he's going to rise from the dead. Jeremiah and his generation needed the comfort and the assurance that every generation needs. That God will sustain his people. That God will comfort his people. That God will assure his people. And that no hardship, no pain, no misfortune, no suffering can undo the promises of God. That no matter how dark, no matter how bleak, no matter how empty, no matter how lonely, no matter how difficult, God's going to make sure that His promises come true in your life. He promised He would be with you. He promised He would sustain you. He promised He would encourage you. We have God's wonderful promise. He cares for his own. He securely plants them according to the strength that he gives. And then look at this discipline that works and changes hearts. Look again in verse seven. It says, then I will give them a heart to know me. That I am the Lord and that they shall be my people. And I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. There are promises that are given in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Isaiah, in the book of Ezekiel. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 11, I hadn't planned on going there. But I'm thinking back again to Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 20, where it says, That they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Jeremiah says they will be my people. I will be their God. And over and over again, there's a promise given. Instead of a hard heart, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Instead of a wicked and a rebellious heart, I'm going to give you a sensitive and submissive heart that is willing to do what I ask you to do. They shall be my people. You know what? This is a statement of covenant. 
And look what else it says. For they shall return. It's a word that Jeremiah uses over and over again. It's the Hebrew word shub. The idea is a returning that results in a restoration. And look what it says. And they, I will give them a heart to know me. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. They'll return half-heartedly. Wholeheartedly. You know what the captivity did? It completely and permanently cured the Jewish people of idolatry. I don't know if you've ever experienced something in your life where you decided, I'm never going back to that. I'm never going to go back to that particular sin. I'm never going to go back to that particular iniquity. It almost killed me. And that's exactly what this captivity will do. The, this would cause them, if you will, God promises that he's going to use the captivity to work in the hearts of the people. And so there becomes a type and a picture for each and every one of us. Is it possible that God is willing to work in the pain, work in the suffering, work in the uprooting, work in the loss of all things to cause them to do what he's always wanted them to do? To fall on their face and seek him. What has to be taken away from you? What pain do you have to experience? What loss do you have to embrace before you're willing to go? Okay, God, you have my attention and I am willing to listen to what you have to say. And that's exactly what this captivity did for them. The pain, the suffering, the uprooting, the loss of all things would cause them to seek the Lord, to cry out to God. Now, you have to understand part of that point. In crying out to God, guess what happened? They repented of their sin. They turned to the Lord. And in crying out to God, in surrendering to God, in turning from their sin and turning to the Lord, they would renew their relationship with the Lord. They would take the necessary steps to know the Lord. The suffering, the hardship, the trial, the captivity would cause them to turn to God and worship God and surrender to God and serve God. But that's not always what suffering and pain and hardship does for many people. They bitterly resent God and they mock God and they curse God and they blaspheme God and they become resolved in their heart to never go back to church and never open up their Bible and never trust Jesus. And all of a sudden now you find two different groups of people in two different in the exact same circumstances of suffering and pain and one is a good basket and one is a bad basket. Both of them are basket cases. So why does one survive and the other one not survive? And the Lord gives the reason. The children of Israel as they find themselves in captivity, would purpose in their heart to obey God and to keep his commandments and serve as a strong testimony for him in the midst of a pagan and an unbelieving world. And if you want to know what life was like in that captivity, I would refer you to the book of Daniel. And as you go through the book of Daniel, you're going to see exactly what life was like 
At the end of, of Paul's life, he wrote to his friend and companion in ministry, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. When Paul is standing right on the precipice of the end of his life and he sees the shadow of the Roman axe getting ready to take his life, he writes these words to his friend. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack. He will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. No wonder Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you will likewise perish. There, repent you therefore, be converted, it says in Acts 3.19. Repent, be converted, that your sins will be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And so over and over again, no matter how painful the circumstances, no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how painful the circumstances, you're given an opportunity Will you use the pain? Will you use the suffering? Will you use the trial? Will you use the hardship to trust the Lord completely? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, the writer of Hebrews says, Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness To those who are trained by it, what is the result of discipline? Peace, the fruit of righteousness. It's a peace and a righteousness for those who are trained by it. But if you hate discipline, if you despise discipline, if you neglect discipline, If discipline is not a part of your life, if spiritual disciplines are not a part of your life, then when the discipline comes, guess what? Whining, complaining, and the rotten figs. Look at verse 8. And as the bad figs which cannot be eaten, they are so bad. Surely thus says the Lord. So will I give up Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his princes, his the residue of Jerusalem who remain in this land and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. Who are the bad figs? King Zedekiah, his princes, the residue of Jerusalem who remain in the land. Good figs. The good figs are the people who in pliable, in mercy, in flexibility. Respond to the captivity in such a way that they're willing to cry out to God and they're willing to cry out in such a way that their hearts are eventually changed. Who are the bad figs? The bad figs are the apostates who are left behind to support wicked King Zedekiah. And wicked King Zedekiah is looking to Egypt to make an alliance with Egypt to overthrow Babylon. It becomes a type and a picture of people who are willing to make agreements with the world in order to have a temporary satisfaction to continue to live a life of selfishness, isolation, and a refusal to submit to God. Some of the people attempted to flee by finding refuge in Egypt. 
These are the people who are determined to resist Babylon with the help of Egypt. But what they don't understand is that in resisting Babylon in this particular instance, they're resisting God. Why? Because God had purposed in his heart to discipline the children of Israel for their wickedness and rebellion. And sometimes God will purpose in his heart to discipline us. Because he has a far more important goal to accomplish. And that's to mold you and to shape you into the image of Jesus. What happens to the bad figs? Look at verse 9. I will deliver them to trouble into all the kingdoms of the earth for their good? No, for their harm. For edification, no, to be a reproach and a byword, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. Remember, I asked you the question, what do you do with good figs? You preserve them so that you can enjoy them. What do you do with rotten figs? I know what some of you do. You keep it in the refrigerator until the mold actually begins to grow on it. But this is still good. At what point are you willing to admit that it's disgusting through and through? You cut it in half and the mold isn't just on the surface. It goes all the way into the interior of the fruit. And you get near it and you start to feel your stomach churn because you know that if you eat that, it's disgusting. You throw it away. What do you do with rotten figs? You throw them away. You throw them away. And the picture will sometimes carry long into the future. And there are some people who read that and they go, what? God would throw away his people? 200 years. Consistent. Persistent. Begging. Pleading. Persevering. Please turn. It doesn't have to go badly. Please turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. And look what it says in verse 10. And I will send the sword. That's war. And famine. That's starvation. And pestilence. That's disease. I will send the sword and famine and pestilence among them till they are consumed from the land that I gave to them and to their fathers. Will the judgment of God run its course? The answer is yes. The Lord reminds Jeremiah that he will use what is necessary in order to affect the judgment. And if that means war, if that means famine, if that means hardship, then that's what he'll use. And guess what? Babylon will prevail. And as a result of the siege, the people will suffer starvation and plague and diseases. But here's what God wants. Surrender. You throw up the white flag and you go, you're the winner. It's clear to me that the God who reigns in heaven and earth, the God who knows the beginning from the end, the God who has orchestrated all of human history for one purpose and one purpose only to redeem you. To forgive you. To reconcile you. 
The Bible says that God will judge our evil thoughts and our deeds. God judges the unrepentant figs in Jeremiah's day. And they become a type and a picture of everyone who resists and rebels against God. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, it says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And the Bible says he shall reward each man according to his works. And so the bad figs become a type and a picture of the judgment that awaits all unrepentant sinners. And who are the unrepentant sinners? These are the people who are convinced that their present suffering, I want you to think this through, their rotten life, their rotten circumstances, their rotten life and their rotten circumstance has nothing to do with their rotten heart. They don't have a teachable spirit. They've never experienced sustained obedience to the Lord. Warren Wiersbe writes, in times of national catastrophe, no matter how discouraging the circumstances may be, God doesn't desert his faithful remnant. Rebels are scattered and destroyed, but true believers find God faithful to meet their need and accomplish his plans. The people who returned to the land after the captivity were by no means perfect. But they had learned to trust the true and the living God. They learned not to worship idols. If the captivity did nothing else, it purged the Jewish people of their idolatry. And if pain and suffering and loss doesn't drive you into the arms of your Savior, doesn't cause you to cry out to God, doesn't bring you to a place of willful and meaningful turning from your sin and turning to the Lord. And something's wrong. The famous missionary Hudson Taylor used to say, there are three stages in the work of God. Impossible. Difficult. Done. Changing the human heart seems impossible. And then all of a sudden, it only seems difficult. And then all of a sudden, it's done. He changes you. He molds you. He shapes you. All our difficulties are only platforms for the manifestation of his grace and power and love. A.W. Tozer gives this timeless advice. He says, quote, what then are we to do about our problems? He writes, we must learn to live with them until such time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly, unquote. You know what's interesting to me about this parable? How many sets of baskets are there? Are there three? Are there good figs and bad figs and so-so figs? Little good, a little bad. No, there's the good figs and there's the bad figs. 
Does your present suffering produce a willingness to believe God is at work in your life for good? Would you characterize as the pain and the suffering and the problem and the trial? Is it making you closed or open? Teachable or unteachable? Has it left you with a heart unchanged? Or with a changing heart? Is it causing you to embrace obedience? Or continue in disobedience. This obedience isn't to make you saved or acceptable to God. But rather. A mechanism whereby you begin to manifest. Something that you've prayed for. And you've longed for. A change of heart. That's what we pray. That's what we sing. Change my heart O God. Fill my heart, O oh God. Mold me. Shape me. Change me. Use me. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that this parable is an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth. The truth about us. Lord, we are that basket of fruit. And we are in one basket or the other. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would respond to your discipline. Lord, that we would respond in such a way that we would be willing to concede. You're using this for my good. Lord, you're using this. To change my heart. Lord, you're using this to give me a teachable spirit. You're using this to bring me into a deeper level of obedience. Change my heart, oh God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.